Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 57, Skylab 3 Part 1, Fuel Icicle of Doom. Last time, we covered the back half of Skylab 2, the first crewed mission of Skylab, America's first space station. Pete Conrad, Joe Kerwin, and Paul Weitz stabilized the thermal situation, freed a trapped solar array, and after 28 successful days, left a space station that was healthy and ready to get back to work with its second crew. While Skylab waited on that second crew, ground controllers in Houston and Huntsville kept an eye on the enormous spacecraft. Shortly after Skylab 2 departed, the space station's cabin atmosphere was vented down from the usual 5 psi to about two-thirds of a psi. All pressurized spacecraft have some small amount of leaks, and it didn't make sense to lose nitrogen and oxygen if no one was on board. For the 36 days Skylab was on its own, the ground kept its systems healthy and even performed some remote science using the Apollo Telescope Mount, or ATM. But Skylab wouldn't be lonely as long as everyone expected. In a pretty rare move in the spaceflight business, the launch of Skylab 3 was actually sooner than originally planned. Instead of the original August 8th, the new date was July 28th. The reason was that while the parasol had saved the day with regards to the whole broiling in the sun thing, it wasn't exactly built for the long haul. It got the job done and allowed Skylab 2 to be a successful mission, but it was noticeably deteriorating by the end of their relatively short mission. The more permanent window shade fix needed to be installed as soon as possible. The crew were asked if they thought they could handle leaving a little early, and of course, they said yes. The change of schedule also meant a change in duration. Due to the mysteries of orbital mechanics, what would have been a 56-day mission became a 59-day mission. These days, we don't really bat an eye at a two-month stay in orbit, but it's important to keep in mind that this was a pretty big deal back in 1973. Skylab 2 had surpassed the previous record for lengthiest stay in space. Skylab 3 would be more than doubling it. The medical folks at NASA were still a little skittish about all this. As such, the crew was really only cleared for 28 days at first, with weekly extensions being okayed as they went. Though something tells me nobody really expected it to be a problem. While the main thrust of the mission would be, of course, a staggeringly long list of science experiments, there was one last repair task that would fall onto this crew's shoulders. As I mentioned, the parasol thermal shield, made of nylon, was beginning to deteriorate in the harsh rays of the sun. The parasol had been chosen because it was quick and easy, but the crew of Skylab 2 had also carried along a thermal shield solution that was expected to last quite a bit longer. We'll get into the details in a few minutes here, but another EVA the Skylab designers had not anticipated was in order. The crew also carried a bundle of new rate gyroscopes, which they dubbed the six-pack, in case more of these important instruments failed during their lengthy stay. Flying this mission would be another spacecraft vet we're well familiar with, and two rookies. Serving as commander was Apollo 12 Lunar Module pilot Alan Bean. After their successful moon landing mission, Pete Conrad and Alan Bean had both turned their attention to Skylab as their next big challenge. Their crewmate Dick Gordon stayed in the Apollo rotation, hoping for a command on the eventually cancelled Apollo 18. We already discussed Bean's background back in episode 39, Apollo 12 Part 1. In a rarity for the space above us, our historical timeline has somewhat aligned with current events. Normally, I try not to comment on current events, for the sake of those listening months or hopefully even years down the road, but this just lines up too well. 
On May 26, 2018, less than a week before this episode was published, Alan Bean passed away at the age of 86. With him gone, the crew of Apollo 12 fades into history, as Pete Conrad and Dick Gordon left us in 1999 and 2017 respectively. After retiring as an astronaut, Bean became a successful artist, conveying the remarkable details of his spaceflights that burn in memory but cannot be captured in any photo. This was his second and final spaceflight. Flying in the role of science pilot was Owen Garriott. Born on November 22, 1930, in Enid, Oklahoma, Garriott was part of Astronaut Group 4, the first group of scientist astronauts. He was an expert in electrical engineering, having earned a bachelor's degree, master's degree, and PhD in the subject. He also served with the Navy for three years as an electronics officer, which I guess makes sense. He joined NASA in 1965, where he quickly learned that when it came to crew selection, pilot astronauts came first, at least back then. Fun fact, his son Richard Garriott is a notable video game developer. He turned the success of his games, including Tabula Rasa and Ultima, into a ticket to the International Space Station for a 12-day stay in 2008, all for the low, low price of $30 million. Skylab 3 was Owen Garriott's first of two flights. And last but not least was Skylab 3's pilot, Jack Lausma. We've actually heard of Lausma before, even though this was his first flight. He was sitting at the Capcom console when first Jack Swaggart and then Jim Lovell famously radioed down, Houston, we've had a problem here. Lausma was born on February 29, 1936 in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Since he was born on February 29th, he had only seen his birthday on the calendar nine times before his flight, which must be a record. And I'm sure no one has ever, ever, ever made dumb jokes about birthdays at his expense before. Lausma earned a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering in 1955 before joining the U.S. Marine Corps. After flight training, he flew as an attack pilot and served with the 1st Marine Air Wing in Japan. In 1965, he furthered his education with a master's degree in aeronautical engineering from the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School. He joined NASA in 1966 as part of Astronaut Group 5. This was his first of two flights. I don't know if Alan Bean is just an especially friendly guy or what, but it's worth noting that both the Apollo 12 crew and the Skylab 3 crew became good friends while training for their missions and remained so afterwards. Bean attributed much of Skylab 3's success to the closeness of the crew. You really just can't beat having a close team that you get along with. After two and a half years of training and a few tense weeks of uncertainty about the future of their mission, the crew of Skylab 3 found themselves atop a Saturn 1B rocket ready to launch. Lausma is apparently a pretty relaxed guy since he climbed aboard his spacecraft and soon fell asleep. Capcom had to wake him up shortly before liftoff. On July 28, 1973, just before 7.11 a.m. Florida time, and with all three crew members definitely conscious now, the Saturn 1B rumbled off the pad. After an uneventful ride uphill, their CSM was deposited into a nominal orbit and began to close in on its target. Near the end of the second trip around the world, something decidedly off-nominal happened. One of the attitude control thrusters floated by the window. Or at least that's what it looked like. Outside the right side window, a flurry of what Bean described as sparklers were flying from the back of the spacecraft, as well as what appeared to be an entire thruster. This was very bad. But it also didn't make a ton of sense. Thrusters don't just fall off like that. 
After thinking it through and looking at other indicators, they realized what actually happened was propellant was leaking into one of the clusters of attitude control thrusters. There were four of these quads placed evenly around the main cylinder of the service module, each with four thrusters all pointing essentially 90 degrees away from each other. Rather than an entire thruster falling off, what had actually happened was propellant had leaked into one of the thruster nozzles, frozen into the shape of that nozzle, and then drifted off. So it wasn't actually a nozzle, just a nozzle-shaped fuel icicle. The scariest type of icicle. Quad B was identified as the source of the leak, and valves were closed to isolate it. Leak solved, but now there were only three quads. The CSM didn't need all four quads, but I'd bet something sparked in the minds of those responsible for mounting a potential rescue mission. You never know. For now, though, the immediate focus was on rendezvous with Skylab, which was just made considerably more challenging by the loss of Quad B. Somewhat surprisingly, at least to me, this doesn't seem to have been a common training scenario. I get that not everything can be planned in advance, and that there are many other problems which were more likely, but still, if I were running the rendezvous portion of the simulation runs, I'd definitely want to throw in a broken quad. Maybe two. Anyway, the crew had to adapt. With one quad gone, suddenly rotation was coupled with translation. Basically, every time they turned the spacecraft, they'd also scoot to the side a bit. And every time they moved to the side, they'd rotate a bit. Dealing with a spacecraft that doesn't have its thrusters aligned with the direction it wants to go can be pretty irritating. On top of that, with some thrusters down, they lost some of their ability to slow down as they approached Skylab. Garriott ran the numbers and kept insisting that Bean needed to slow down more. Bean was sort of freaked out by how long they were burning as compared to a nominal run and hesitated to do more. He was concerned that they would come up short and have to do a lengthy and fuel-expensive re-rendezvous. In the end, Garriott was right. They arrived at Skylab a little faster than planned, and if they hadn't burned as long as they did, they probably just would have gone sailing by. Bean brought the CSM up close for a fly-around of their new orbital home, allowing all three men to inspect the structure. The parasol was flapping in the thin plumes from the RCS thrusters, and there was still that ominous bundle of wires where the second solar array used to be, but otherwise all looked well. Bean moved up to the multiple docking adapter, or MDA, and docked with no issues. Just 10 hours after leaving Florida, the crew opened the hatch into the MDA. I've seen this called the moment that Skylab became the first spacecraft to host two crews, but I think it's worth throwing an asterisk on there and saying two complete crews. I don't know all that much about the Russian side of the equation here, but I do know that Soyuz 4 launched with one guy, Soyuz 5 launched with three guys, they docked, two crew members moved from 5 to 4, and they both landed safely. Well, sort of. Boris Volonov, the lone cosmonaut aboard Soyuz 5, had quite a ride on re-entry. The equipment module failed to separate, the structure entered the atmosphere with the heat shield facing backwards, and the cockpit filled with smoke before the module finally broke away. Then the parachutes didn't open all the way, and the spacecraft landed in the middle of nowhere, forcing Volonov to walk a few miles through the Russian winter cold to a nearby village. Yeah, what little I do know about the Russian space program is crazy. Anyway, Skylab. Once the hatch into Skylab was open, and the crew moved into the absurdly roomy space station, an ugly problem began to well up. The crew was space sick. Officially, NASA calls this space adaptation syndrome, and it had been a known issue for a number of years. But given the complete lack of any problem on Skylab 2, 
it was hoped that Skylab 3 would enjoy a similar experience, especially since this crew in particular trained extra hard to desensitize themselves to motion sickness. No dice. In fact, Jack Lausma was already getting sick before they even docked. Once they moved into Skylab, Bean and Garriott joined him. The problem wasn't so much that these guys were just constantly puking, though there was a fair amount of that. The problem was they couldn't really get any work done. Forgive me as I paint you this word picture, but think back to the last time you were really sick to your stomach, or for those who partake, the last time you had a few too many to drink. The room always feels sort of swimmy, turning your head too fast is quickly punished, and you have a constant awareness of your stomach. It's not a good way to be, and it's not a good way to work. The guys were able to move in and start unpacking, but were forced to move so gingerly that they were essentially just in recovery mode. The schedule began to slip. Right off the bat, the window shade EVA was bumped a day, and not for the last time. By day four, the crew still wasn't quite at 100%, but were at least able to stop taking anti-nausea medication. In order to make sure they were at their best for the tricky spacewalk, the EVA was once again pushed back, this time to day eight. This sickness was a problem for a number of reasons. For one thing, it's just no fun being nauseous. It's bad for morale. Morale would also be impacted when the schedule pressure began to catch up with them. On top of that, every day the EVA was pushed back was a day that the parasol deteriorated a little more and Skylab got a little hotter. They also needed the EVA so they could swap out the film canisters on the ATM, so no solar science until they adapted. Plus, it was just expensive to be up there. Every day wasted in orbit was a few million bucks doing not much. By mission day 5, they were essentially fully adapted to space. It didn't make sense to hop out on an EVA right away, but the crew were up to speed in getting work done. But as the crew got more comfortable, Houston felt more comfortable trying to push them back onto schedule. Between the pressure from Houston and the pressure from their own desire to accomplish as much as possible and some still sensitive stomachs, the mission began to feel kind of like a slog. Bean even called down to express his frustration with the unforgiving and unrealistic timelines they are being held to. He said, I've looked out that window for five minutes and five days. The rest of that time, we've been hustling. Another aspect adding to this frustration was a sense in orbit that Houston was butting in and a sense on the ground that the astronauts weren't really playing ball. I can see why this would be the case. You've got the crew up there, with two of them trying to prove themselves on their first flight, trying to stop feeling sick, and start getting as much work done as possible. And then every time Skylab passes into a ground contact, which is only something like 30% of the time, Houston would have a new thing that needed their attention. Even if the ground meant well, I could understand this getting on their nerves. Meanwhile, on the ground, you see yourself as A, trying to help these guys accomplish their mission, and B, make sure they actually got to all this important work that you spent so long preparing. So when they're not being as responsive as you'd like, it could be frustrating. What's funny about this, of course, is that both sides were completely dependent on each other. The crew needed the ground, preparing their schedule and pushing them to stay on it. They needed the updated data and tasks and everything else. And the ground needed the crew to, well, do everything. I will be very curious to see how this dynamic plays out when we eventually start flying to Mars. That tight interdependence will no longer be possible. And I wonder if those crews and their mission control will start to feel less and less like part of the same big team. Anyway, that's a story for another podcast in the hopefully not too distant future. 
On day six, just as things were finally starting to get back on track, the mission was dealt another nasty surprise. I've seen different sources on this say that the crew was either awoken by an alarm or were already up and checking out the view of the aurora out the window, but whatever they were doing, they suddenly saw what looked like a snowstorm outside the window. What looked like a snowstorm was, in fact, frozen particles of attitude control fuel spraying past their window. Their CSM had sprung a second leak, this time on Quad D across from Quad B. I think that's probably our cue to talk about that potential rescue mission. The long duration of Skylab missions presented an opportunity that just wasn't really possible in earlier missions. Rescue. Without explicitly preparing a rescue mission ahead of time, there was just no way to get a spacecraft and launch vehicle checked out and on the pad in time to come to the aid of an ailing mission. Even Gemini 7 at 14 days would have been far too short. And speaking of Gemini 7, remember how difficult it was to get two spacecraft launched close enough together to rendezvous when they were actually planning it? No, up until this point, the only ride a crew had home was the one that they brought with them. But with Skylab, if a CSM had a problem, the crew could just stay put. The M in MDA stood for multiple because there were two docking ports. If it really came down to it, NASA could scramble, launch a second CSM, dock on the extra port, and save the crew. And it looked like it was really coming down to it. But how would such a mission work? Once the second RCS quad went down, NASA switched the crew at the Kennedy Space Center into three-shift-a-day, 24-7 mode. Work would happen around the clock to ensure that a Saturn 1B rocket would be ready as soon as possible. The leak occurred on August 6th, and the earliest realistic rescue was September 5th. That is not a ton of time to prepare a launch. While work on the pad took place, a CSM was rushed into checkout to make sure it was healthy. The plan was to have it stacked on the launch vehicle in only eight days. Flying this potential mission would be two members of the Skylab 3, and four actually, backup crew, Vance Brand and Don Lind. I'm going to skip their bios for now because, spoiler, this rescue mission would be called off, and also spoiler, both men would fly later. Brand and Lind were suddenly thrust into weeks of working as hard as possible to both prepare for their surprise mission, but also try to prevent it from ever happening. While they spent time in the simulators and reviewing the changes needed to make their command module fit for the task at hand, they also worked to think of viable routes home for the CSM already in orbit. The CSM needed to be modified because for those keeping count at home, a command module has three seats. And between the rescue crew and the Skylab 3 crew, there would be five astronauts to get home. It's easy to forget, but with the crew in their couches, there was actually a surprising amount of room to their back, along what could be thought of as the floor. Two extra couches were added in this space, with the heads rotated 180 degrees away from the hatch. Space was made between the two couches to carry back critical science material, such as ATM film and, believe it or not, dried fecal samples. Gross, but useful for studying how the crew was handling space. While overseeing all that, Brand and Lind also developed procedures to fly Skylab's three somewhat crippled CSM home in its current configuration, with three quads down, or even with all four gone. If the problem was systemic and all four quads were lost, the backup crew came up with a method for using these small thrusters in the command module itself, as opposed to the service module, which were normally used for entry attitude control, to get Bean, Garriott, and Lausma home. 
It was a conflicting job. Both men had yet to fly in space and would have killed for the opportunity. But they also knew that it was their job to do whatever they could to avoid the risk, cost, and while I'm sure no one explicitly said it, impact to NASA's public image of flying a rescue mission. In the end, the problem was determined to not be systemic, meaning the other two quads were unlikely to fail, and the crew would be able to use Brand and Lynn's work to get home on their own. We'll be seeing Vance Brand again in just a few episodes as part of the Apollo-Soyuz test project, but poor Don Lind had to wait another 12 years for his flight, leading to one of the longest gaps between astronaut selection and flying in space, 19 years. See you down the road, buddy. But that call wouldn't be made for a while, so let's flash back to Mission Day 6. The implications of the leak were not yet clear, but the EVA was once again booted, this time to Day 10. But that's the last time it was delayed. On Day 9, the crew prepared and practiced the upcoming spacewalk. Just to keep things interesting, Skylab threw one more curveball their way. The coolant loops in the airlock module began to leak, both primary and backup. It looked like there should be enough coolant to last for the rest of Skylab 3, but it would run out sometime during Skylab 4. This crew would spend the remainder of the mission trying to figure out where the source of the leak was, but were unsuccessful. Ten days after arriving in space, and six days later than planned, it was finally time for the big EVA. On the docket today was routine stuff like swapping out the film canisters on the Apollo telescope mount, but also installing a new, more permanent thermal shield. So let's get the crew outside and learn how this is going to work. Performing this EVA would be Owen Garriott and Jack Lausma. I thought that was pretty interesting since the Apollo landings got me used to the idea that the commander always goes on an EVA, but in this case, Alan Bean stayed inside to keep an eye on his two crewmates. The big task for Garriott and Lausma was installing the window shade-like thermal shield. This consisted of two long poles, both connected to a part of the upper Skylab structure and splaying out towards the base of the orbital workshop in a big isosceles triangle with a cover stretched between the edges. And it really was pretty big, about 22 by 24 feet. With a clever arrangement of the poles, some loops, and tethers, it would be possible to extend the new thermal cover all the way down to the base of the spacecraft. This EVA wasn't quite as hair-raising as the one performed by Pete Conrad and Joe Kerwin, but it was still not routine. Lausma especially had to deal with getting around a part of the station that was not designed to have people outside. At least this time, no fancy rope work was required to keep the astronauts' feet anchored. Special foot restraints were designed that attached to the Skylab structure, allowing them to do their work without flopping all over the place. As Lausma got into position, Garriott began to assemble the long poles out of several 5-foot segments. I've seen both 11 and 12 listed for the number of poles, but I guess whatever, because in the end, they were just two big long poles. Despite the complexity, the shield deployment didn't really have any notable challenges. Maybe the biggest one that stood out to me was Lausma having to pry apart the folds of the shield as it emerged from its container. It seems that it was shipped out to the launch pad so quickly that the special coating hadn't really had enough time to dry properly, requiring a little manual intervention from the astronaut to make it fully unfurl. With the rods and deteriorating fabric of the parasol still in place, and the poles, ropes, and cover of the window shade, the exterior of Skylab was beginning to look like a mix between a failed campsite and a baked potato, but this wasn't a beauty contest. 
The installation of this new shield meant that all of the damage done to Skylab on Ascent had been repaired, or at least as repaired as it could be. From here on out, the focus would be back on the original mission. While they were out there, Lausma climbed up the ATM to swap out the film, and I guess Joe Curran wasn't crazy after all because he had the same sensation of being high above Skylab. The crew also retrieved some material science experiments placed outside by the Skylab 2 crew and placed a few more of their own. Some of these experiments had been designed for the sun-facing scientific airlock, but that was now occupied by the parasol. In all, the EVA took about six and a half hours. And for those of you keeping score at home, this was NASA's 32nd spacewalk. And I suppose if we're keeping count, I should mention that at this time, the Soviet Union still only had two spacewalks. In fact, the second one was the crew transfer between Soyuz 4 and 5 that I mentioned earlier, so that's fun. Now that things were mostly under control, the Skylab 3 crew was free to turn their attention inwards again and focus on their day-to-day routine. They'd spent years training for this mission and had only 59 days, 49 now, to squeeze as much as they could out of it. With each new day came a new tweak to the procedures and a new layer of polish on the on-orbit skills of the astronauts. As Bean, Garriott, and Lausma turned up the wick, would Houston be able to keep up? Would the crew be able to endure the long and challenging days? And would their newfound sprint-like productivity set dangerous precedents? We'll find out next time as we cover the crew's frantic workload, perform some important science, and wonder what spiders think about space. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass.